Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. This week, I am delighted to be joined as a co-host by Aryeh Burkhoff, my friend, mentor, founder of Liontree, fresh from deal with AT&T. Liontree, the global telecoms, media and technology advisory boutique. As regular listeners know, The Vasey View takes a deep dive every two weeks into an area or topic where technology meets public policy. We look at individual country strategies like France, Holland, Estonia, Israel, we look at specific sectors like agritech and cybersecurity and what governments can do to support them. And we interview policymakers themselves, such as former Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Malcolm Turnbull. Today, I'm delighted to say our special guest will address the biggest public policy issue we all face, tackling climate change. Mark Carney is already well known as a highly successful and engaged governor of the Bank of England. And since leaving that post, he has become, among other things, the UK Prime Minister's finance advisor for COP26, the climate change summit being held in Glasgow at the end of this year, and the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. That rather wordy title can be translated, I think, as the person who wants to re-engineer financial investment to ensure the transition to net zero. In addition, amazingly, he's found time to publish a book, Values, Building a Better World for All, which in my view is nothing less than a comprehensive manifesto for governments and companies to navigate the digital world. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Ed. Great pleasure. It's fantastic to have you on the podcast. We really want to dive straight in talking about how we're going to re-engineer the financial system to help companies transition to net zero, because we all know that one of the biggest arguments used against moves towards net zero is how much it's going to cost. But people may have worked out from my podcast that I know very little about finance, whereas Arie Burkhoff knows an enormous amount. So I'm going to hand over to Arie just to kick off the conversation on financial re-engineering. Well, thank you, Ed and Mark. Uh, it's a great honor and pleasure to have you on the podcast here and uh, to uh, re-engage with you uh, virtually and hope we get to see each other in person again uh, uh, since we've last seen each other in, in London. I've been obviously a great admirer of your work uh, as a fellow banker, but obviously in your case, you're the banker in the UK and doing uh, much, much more uh, important work uh, on a macro scale and now taking on even a bigger challenge and really to get right to the heart of why you wrote this book and, and why now, I really want to just draw, dive straight in because your key goal in looking at the subject matter of the book is to really look and working to ensure that every financial decision uh, takes climate change into account. And uh, combating climate change is going to cost a heck of a lot of money. And so because you used to be a banker and knowing how to look at things from that financial lens and have tremendous credibility in that regard, you know, how do you look at that mountain to climb here and really look at how much money that's going to cost and how do you really assess that and give us a sense of how you wrote that book and why now? Okay. Well, great. It's good, great to see you again, Ari. And uh, you've been busy since I, we last saw each other in person. So well done uh, for that. And maybe we can dive into a bit of that later in the, in the podcast. The book looks at the relationship between value, value in the market, and values of society and, and, and draws out instances when those are aligned. In other words, value in the market is helping to deliver values in society, for example, sustainability, like solving climate change, and when they're in conflict, when values get undercut and they actually undercut the functioning of the market, as we saw in the run-up to the financial crisis 
and and I, I give some detail on that. But let's let's go to the positive, which is what we're trying to do: is how do we align the financial sector to be part of the solution to solve climate change? Uh, how do we get to that point where every financial decision takes climate change into account? We need to get the plumbing of the financial sector right. So a lot of very worthy, but and seemingly anodyne, but essential measures that need to be in place. Things like mandatory disclosure of climate risks and opportunities by companies. So not just what they're emitting today, but what the future holds for them if countries do what they claim they're going to do, which is to transition towards uh, a net zero world uh, on schedule for uh, sub two degrees. What does that mean for a company's strategy, its business, its opportunities, that kind of disclosure? Secondly, so that investors and banks have the right tools to manage those risks, seize those opportunities. Think about uh, climate risk management. Uh, look, there's a lot of uh, very techie uh, issues around that, which maybe I'll spare the listen, listeners from going in. Uh, we can we can attach the COP private finance strategy to the uh, to the notes to this podcast if people people want that. The third thing you need in this first bucket of plumbing is, is certain markets. There's some missing markets. Markets for carbon offsets. It's a it's a hundred billion a year market, or at least it should be. It's measured in the hundreds of millions of dollars at present because it's not a professional market. And that can be fixed and it is being fixed under the leadership of Bill Winters of Standard Chartered and 450 other organizations that are working hard to have this in place for COP. So you need, you need this plumbing in, in place. The second thing you need is commitment from the institutions themselves, uh, financial institutions, a commitment towards net zero. And uh, just as a headline, I'll mention that three weeks ago at the Biden summit, we secured a commitment of banks, insurance companies, pension funds, and beyond around the world, the leading ones, particularly in the UK, I might underscore, but totaling up to $70 trillion of balance sheets saying, we're going to have net zero plans, and not just for 2050, but short-term measurable, demonstrable plans uh, to help uh, companies decarbonize. And the third thing we need is climate policy. We need credible and predictable climate policy. So it matters not just that the UK says it's going to go down by 68% uh, emissions by 2030 uh, relative to uh, 2005 levels, but that there are specific policies that move in that direction. So the commitments on uh, offshore wind, for example, the commitments to have a moratorium on new internal combustion engines by 2030, uh, a series of other measures that are part of uh, the government's strategies all of those come together. And what happens is the financial sector can see the future, which is the lower emissions future. There's credibility there. It has the information because of the plumbing and it has the markets in which to act. And then it does what it does best. And you know this from your daily life. And apparently Ed doesn't know any of this because he says he doesn't understand finance. <laughs> but Ed, here's the thing. What finance is really good at is pulling the future forward to the present if it has those conditions. And so this is all about creating those conditions. The good news is on all of those fronts, we're moving in the right direction. Right. So let, let's go to the foundational aspects of all this first, which is getting the right data set in place. So uh, one of the companies at LionTree that we've invested in is a company called Grow Intelligence, which is run by a woman named Sarah Menker, who it's an AI platform, which is basically creating the clean global data sets on climate. And it was recently nominated in the Time 100 Most Influential Companies. And so what it does is basically trying to create the data sets around different elements of climate and almost trying to create almost a new asset class, of the climate asset class, which you could almost go into being a impact asset class. So what role does like technology play in help to create those data sets in ameliorating this climate crisis? And what companies are leading the charge from your perspective 
and which ones are kind of like falling short and how do we get into that kind of that clean data set of the underpinning of the foundation of this marketplace? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question and it's a fundamental issue. So first thing is what I said a moment ago is we need companies to do this standardized disclosure consistent around the world. And uh, I, I do want to underscore the UK is G7 president, COP president is leading the charge here. We're legislating. We're getting the accountants to do it through something called the IFRS. I'm going to throw another acronym. You know what it is. Most people won't. Don't worry, but it's a good thing. The U.S. is headed in that direction. Big news out of the U.S. on this. The world's moving in this direction to get this overall. But there's more data, and it does need to be comparable, and it needs to be consistent. And so there's a series of companies that are competing to be the providers for that information. And I think what is needed, and you just gave an example, is clean data consistent data and providing one thing that I think investors, banks, financial market participants look for is what I would call a single company view. So where can I get not just my climate data on a company, but also broader sustainability uh, data, data, so-called ESG data, uh, so that I, as the decision maker, can and analyze that data, manipulate that data, uh, and decide, you know, make comparisons and make uh, make judgments around. And so there's some of the bigger players in the market, you know, an IHS market, Refinitiv and others who, who work to provide those, uh, Bloomberg, I guess, as well, provide that uh, type of information. Crucially, with technology, though, we need a couple of other things. We need monitoring, real-time monitoring technology, which you know from your world, uh, low-Earth orbit, uh, satellite, satellite technology, but also just the monitoring ability. So for a couple of things. One, I'll give a couple of practical examples. One is if I buy an offset because somebody has planted a bunch of trees in Indonesia and the, as those trees grow, they take carbon out of the air. Well, I need to know that those trees are still there next year, year after, et cetera, that somebody hasn't come back and cut them down. I'm not going to fly to Indonesia all the time to see it as nice as that would be, but uh, uh, but I can get real-time cheap monitoring of that. You can also use uh, satellite technology to optimize nature-based solutions, uh, reforest not just reforestation, but agriculture and other solutions. So there's a real growth in that area and there's great competition. Tracking methane, for example, one of the biggest challenges in the short term is reducing methane emissions from energy production, other production, has a big payback in the short term on uh, climate change. Again, it can be targeted, monitored, and, and be clear. I'll, I'll throw it one other example, which is early stage, and you probably, you know, I don't, I'm not going to flag a company that does it because it's it's early enough stage, but there are those who are trying, which is around tracking the carbon molecule through the supply chain and attaching the carbon molecules through the supply chain and or tracking the green electron through the power grid so that you have, in the second case, you are matching your production. You know you're buying a green uh, electron uh, for your production and you're, you're legitimately net zero on that case or, or low emission on that case. In the first case, I'm tracking the, the molecule through the supply chain, which by the way, could be done through some blockchain and other technology. This is one of the good applications of, uh, of blockchain potentially. That helps me as a, you know, many of your clients, multinationals, tell their overall footprint, right? What's my overall footprint? Where can I optimize? How do I get it down? And incredibly and, and clearly and consistently robustly communicate to all of their stakeholders, not just shareholders, but employees, communities, when they get to uh, net zero, how they manage it down and get to net zero. So there's a huge, huge technology element uh, to this uh, really across across the board. Yeah, because ultimately what you're doing is the financial system, which you're rightly pointing out, is a measurement of, sort of 
future economic health, right, and economic prosperity has to then match up with the impact system or the future kind of overall just health or, you know, climate uh, change as a measurement of impact and health. And that uh, chasm has to be narrowed. And that may, that may be a holistic exercise. But within that holistic exercise, there are certain elements like technology or financial markets or, uh, you know, certain um, you know, industries that can probably be more acute at kind of like bringing those two things together beyond just the overall ecosystem. So you can do it one by one or you can do it holistically. And so you're saying like the banking system and the financial system can lead the way, the technology system can lead the way, or sometimes more. And obviously the carbon ecosystem can lead the way, whereas it maybe more of a classic industry in the financial system may be kind of like last to, to kind of like make that leap. But ultimately, the overall financial markets may be turned on its head and you may have a whole different asset class in the future, which is kind of putting climate at the forefront, not the traditional financial system. Yeah. And our, let me just pick up on that, Aria, because this is a, is a crucial point, which is and, and so one of the questions is going to be whether we have a new asset class or whether we just have not just this is a major thing, a new vector of value, a new determinant of value, which is you look at every asset. Every asset, not just some, not just in the energy sector or the steel sector, but every asset and say, are you carbon competitive? Are you in a position where you're going to be on this path to net zero? And the critical thing, and this is where we need a combination of technology, information, judgment, right? Some of that judgment will be algorithmic, but a lot of it still will be actual judgment about which companies can I back with capital? They might be high emission today. They might be an outlier today. They're going to become, I'll use the term, carbon competitive tomorrow. And actually, we're going to capture a bunch of value because the market hasn't been looking at it that way. And that's, that's, that's what makes it so exciting. And it's part of what makes it huge, huge commercial opportunities, not just the scale of investment, although that's enough, but actually the whole market, or virtually the whole market has not been looked at through this lens. It now is beginning to be done so. And there's just going to be huge dispersion in terms of valuations to begin with. Hence, opportunity to make a lot of money and lose a lot of money if you're caught on the wrong side. So, like for those people out there that are not looking at this as a sort of like field exercise or a compliant exercise, when you think about ESG, so which ESG assets actually create shareholder value in your buy mark like today? Well, look, I think there's a fair bit of evidence of divine coincidence. I, I put it that way, where you know you get better ESG performance and you're outperforming. Uh, the broader market. And, and that's for a few reasons, right? One is you're often screening out bad actors that, you know, go along for a while and then they're subject to a crisis. So you just, you're just cutting off that left tail of uh, bad performance. Secondly, um, if you've got a sense of purpose and you're broadly moving in that direction, you've got suppliers online, you've got employees online, your, your community's broadly supported, people know what you're about, you tend to score higher on ESG, and actually, you tend to perform better because there is that alignment of all these uh, all these drivers. There, there's a basic thing which I think management, uh, in my experience, management that think about these big structural changes. Look, you you see a lot in the media. You see on uh, on AI, machine learning, the intersection of these. Climate is another structural rewiring, if you will, of the economy. Those management teams that think about these issues tend to be more oriented towards them. Well, they tend to be better managers and therefore they outperform in terms of uh, other things. Not, it's not 100%, of course, nothing ever is, but you have those broad alignment. And the key is to, it's, is to learn through the ESG data that you can have 
okay, which are the metrics that uh, indicate that and, uh, and supplement that actually with, you know, good old fashioned engagement with, <laughs> with the people that are running these uh, organizations. I mean, what fascinates me about the discussion you guys have just had is that traditionally, when you think about climate change, and you particularly think about technology, you think about technology, you know, solar power, to put it crudely, you don't think about, I think the change is monitoring, that monitoring technology is going to become one of the most important drivers towards climate change. And I was thinking about short term versus long term, because as an investor, you still tend to think in short term mode and you know how am I going to make the most money this year from investing in these companies? What is the incentive to invest in a company even if it's on a downward trend? And I wondered whether as part of the kind of monitoring technology that is now becoming prevalent, this is going to drive public policy. So I was thinking, for example, about these this idea of having carbon tariffs that when you import and you can track that you've tracked the carbon molecule of the goods you've imported, you could potentially impose a carbon tariff, which obviously acts as an incentive. But it could also be protectionism by the back door. I mean, how do you, I wonder, Mark, how you felt that kind of nexus between this uh, monitoring technology and public policy is going to develop? Well, you've, Ed, you've, uh, you've put your finger right at the heart of one of the issues around what are called carbon border adjustments. Um, people may hear that term. They're going to hear it more frequently, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, uh, which is something that's being considered by the European Union. Uh, the Biden administration has talked about them in similar terms. So it's basically, as you said, a carbon tariff. Now, if you're going to have a carbon tariff, I mean, let's let's say we've decided we're going to have a carbon tariff, and let's say it's for the steel industry because it's it really matters to the extent to which it's quite expensive to be less carbon intensive, and you know others could free ride uh, on our efforts. Uh, that's the fundamental issue. But how do I measure the efforts that they're making? The easiest way to do that is well, if I have a carbon price and they have a carbon price, is there a big difference between the two? Okay, fine. U.S., for example, doesn't have a carbon price, doesn't necessarily have a prospect of having a carbon price, but is thinking about doing this going forward. So then you have to measure, well, what are the other regulations that this country has relative to my regulations and try to somehow compare their fuel standards, their maybe product standards or uh, electricity grid, all these elements and add them together and see whether there's a big enough difference between the two that would justify this carbon tariff. All of this is in a world where I'm not being protectionist, which is part of your challenge, right? This is a world where I'm just trying to equalize carbon. That's quite tough to do and uh, and can be challenged at the WTO and other things. However, in your question, what you were saying is, well, what if I just measure actually the green molecules or the brown molecules or the combination of those? And I can do that reliably through monitoring. So I'm comparing product standards, delivered steel into the UK, and the carbon footprint relative to that produced here. And it's reliably monitored. Well, that, then it becomes a product standard question and can have the same result in terms of leveling up ambition and can be fair and, and more transparent. And I, I think my, this is just my personal view because I don't work on this, but this will be a, a big part of the policy conversation for, for the next few years, this tariffs versus product standards. And then the ideal, and just to come back to it, the ideal, of course, is that in Glasgow, we're going to have a high ambition COP. Countries will all be making big efforts, and this will be more of a theoretical discussion because uh, you, know, you, you don't need these tariffs if everybody's uh, moving in the same direction, which is what we very much intend to be the case. You know, also, Mark, you, I noticed you launched this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is another acronym, uh, is it GFANS? GFANS, yes. Yeah, I like your pronunciation, Ari. Thank you. Right, thank you. <laughs> so it brings together uh, 160 uh, firms together. And for everyone, note this 160 firms 
with assets totaling in excess of $70 trillion to accelerate the transition to net zero emissions uh, by 2050 at the latest. So tell us how that's going to work. People say, I heard cats for a living been doing deals, um, but that's truly an extraordinary uh, number and uh, it certainly have a certain ballast to work from uh, with a great goal in mind uh, right around the corner. So how's it all going to work? It is, it is a big deal. And we're, you know, we've got uh, six months, a little less than six months to Glasgow, and we're going to make it a bigger deal by Glasgow. That's the intention is to grow GFANS further across all uh, asset classes. In effect, what these, uh, these whether they're a bank, insurance company, uh, pension fund, what they're saying is, okay, net zero by 2050. Fine. You know, who's going to be around by 2050? But that's the objective. That's all our objective. A target for 2030, the fair share, so the, the people that they invest in or lend to, that they will have reduced emissions consistent with a fair share of the 50% reduction that the world needs to do between now and, and 2030 and, and more in some, you know, in, in some countries than others. So that fair share, so mapping that out and having that contribution and, and clearly doing that, but also short term, for example, within the case of the banks, within 18 months, putting out specific decarbonization strategies for all the main sectors, so the telecom media sector, uh, the steel sector we were talking about, et cetera, and all the way through. And I'll just make one point, you know, the 70 trillion, is, it is a big number. It sounds like a big number. It really is. You know that. The, uh, but there are some other big numbers around the scale of investment needed. And, you know, just this week, the uh, International Energy Agency was saying, in effect, if we want to get to one and a half degrees, we need to double the amount of energy investment every year that we're currently doing. And that brings it from around two and a half trillion dollars a year, another big number to five trillion a year. So it just gives a sense that these we need big numbers in order for this to move and have that alignment. And what GFANS does, apart from just the commitment and these these firms working together and getting this plumbing and other aspects right, is it will be very transparent in terms of uh, what what their strategies are, where they're moving uh, and how much progress they're making. It takes everyone to be working together on this. Right. So you wonder if. uh why we're spending so much time focusing on going to space between uh, Elon Musk and uh, obviously uh, SpaceX and Amazon, et cetera, where we could just be focusing and targeting this one issue altogether here on Earth. Well, I mean, I, you don't want to subscribe to the other side of Elon Musk with all due respect to him, uh, which is that, you know, his effort to go to Mars because, you know, if things don't work out here on the planet that we'll, we'll exile. Uh, but there is one answer benefit of that competition between uh, Blue Origin and SpaceX and Telesat in Canada and, and others for these low uh, Earth orbit satellites is it makes that real time monitoring very cheap, very effective, uh, and it helps with it with the climate uh, process as well. In your view, Mark, is it going to be more? Are we going to have more impact with technology in terms of things like carbon capture or whatever, or in terms of conservation in terms of not chopping things down? Yeah, in my well, in my view. The first thing on climate, everything matters. It's it's seldom an either or. Uh, it's hugely important not to chop more things down. It's hugely important to reforest and increase biodiversity. And you know, for carbon and for other reasons, and the UK is rightly pushing that. The Chinese are pushing that as well. From what I've seen, and I'm not the engineer in the conversation. Put put your somebody put up their hands if they are the engineer in the conversation. We have to admit, okay. But what I'm seeing you very wide range of uh, technologists and engineers is that there's virtually no net zero scenario uh, that in 2050 does not require some degree of carbon capture at equilibrium at that point. So there still are some residual emissions 
Some of them come from agriculture. Some of them come from things like uh, petro, you know, plastics and petrochemicals. In the example of the IA, we can debate whether it should be that. But so there is a need ultimately to have scalable carbon capture, and so the, it, it is very important not just carbon capture and storage, but direct air capture of carbon. And there's very promising technologies on that, but those technologies are not yet economic, and it depends on your risk tolerance. Uh, if you're a VC growth investor, uh, you see huge opportunity. If you're, you know, don't believe in technology, you say, well, it's a council of despair and won't happen. I t- I'm, I'm more on that side of it. Last point I'll make is that one of the advantages of the increasing clarity we have about company plans and sector plans and what needs to be done, what's economic today and what needs to happen is if you're investing, if you have, you know, want to help solve this problem, you can see what needs to be done. Yeah, We need to shift green hydrogen from just off of being economic to becoming economic. We need sustainable aviation fuels. We need direct air capture. We need a few other things. Then, you know, the entrepreneurs and the innovators and the investors are, are starting to go after those areas, which have received very little money up until now. I mean, I, I was intrigued by what REA said about the Musk-Bezos row because, you know, I did a podcast on Agritech and, uh, you know, if there was a, an Elon Musk leading the fight to kind of have lab-grown meat and plant-based uh, agriculture, we'd probably have a massive accelerated impact on climate change. Yeah, although what we instead what we've had is the demonstration of, you know, impossible foods and Beyond Meat and others that have shown that... Uh, you know, the impossible is possible and um, and therefore, you know, more capital is flowing in. Yeah. By the way, I noticed also one really exciting idea uh, in the book that I was intrigued by, which is, um, you know, the ultimate sort of technology direct to consumer world. You have these global platforms like Amazon that then become a platform for free trade, which is your idea. It could be free trade for the SME market, which as an acronym is a small, medium sized enterprises. For the small, medium-sized businesses. So once you have these kind of blanket platforms, which you know you say seventy trillion is a big number, it also is not that big when you think of Amazon as uh, you know one point six, one point seven trillion dollar company. Very quickly can become these global platforms, and then they themselves can be new kind of governments of trade, right? And then new ecosystems as a banker in the private industry and the public industry that you've experienced very successfully. You know, how do you think about these new platforms? Because you, you, you put that idea out there. And what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's important. I, just for those listening, unless they're alarmed, we are not suggesting that Amazon become a government of any, anywhere. <laughs> you never know. It could be the next big thing. <laughs> oh, dear. That's taking the everything store a little too, uh, a little too far. <laughs> but, the, uh, no, but the idea, so part of the so genesis of the, uh, the idea, which is that, um, you know, we've had trade deals, free trade deals, which largely are geared to and help negotiated by large multinational corporations, right? Those types of supply chains. But now is we're, we're moving in a world where it is increasingly easy to produce, you know, to ship something anywhere, to produce something or broadcast. Again, going back to you know one of your areas, Aria, broadcast anywhere through YouTube and other, 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 other media. So why aren't we focused more and why shouldn't we focus more on making that process as seamless as possible for our small businesses? For growth reasons, but also for use the phrase of the moment, leveling up reasons. 
and for political economy reasons, you know, support for broader trade. Now, what do you need for that? Well, first, you need a platform that's uh, efficient. Secondly, and one of the points I go into more detail in the book is around, well, you need a financing mechanism for those SMEs because increasingly those small businesses don't have hard assets. Their assets are really intangible. But of course, they are. There's a lot of information about them, about their financeability, just in terms of traffic that drives through to their sites, uh, the speed with which they pay, the, um, uh, the the social media footprint, and others. And there are a number of companies now developing that use those footprints uh, as better predictors their creditworthiness and are willing to uh, help fund them uh, earlier. So, using again, but you know, I believe in competition. I think we all do. You want to have a system where if we had a small business and we were on, whether it's Amazon or Shopify or whatever platform we're selling in, that we'd be able to take, again, I'm going back to data, our data file, including our, our footprint, our social footprint on that platform, and maybe go to Lloyd's Bank or some other uh, capital provider uh, in order to have the competition for that. You know, it's a, it's a supportive uh, tax environment for entrepreneurs. It's a, a supportive financing environment, which takes advantage of data. Uh, in particular, data that can be harvested from that platform that uh, also makes it uh, competitive. And ideally, what it is uh, between like-minded countries is to say, look, at a certain threshold, we are going to rely on each other's uh, rules and regulations, a certain size threshold for the, for the company that's uh, on the platform. We're going to rely on our product standards, mutual product standards. Uh, and then you cut out a bunch of the uh, red tape and other uh, non-tariff barriers that often uh, restrict that type of commerce. I mean, do you think the politicians are sort of catching up with the consumers? Because I think, you know, Arie's point is, you know, we're used to kind of, in theory, buying anything from anywhere on on a global platform. And yet there are still all these uh, rules and red tape. And I, I think, you know, the point about your book is that you you go well beyond climate change to talk about effectively how digital and technology is, is going to change public policy, which is why I loved it. And I love your point about SMEs having a social media footprint. So you've talked, you talked earlier in the podcast about how we're going to have to change financial reporting standards to take into account climate change. But we're also going to have to change, in a sense, how we value companies and how they report based on a whole host of technology innovations that weren't around 10 years ago. Yeah. Or, and, and, and whether it's how they report or how I, as an investor or a financier, how I value them and what information they can give me and yeah. give you at the same time. So in other words, yeah. what we don't want is a system where I, as the platform provider, have an absolute lock forevermore on that data and information so that I, it's my platform, he can't go to your platform or she can't go to your platform and get finance because I own all the information. By the way, sorry not to be too techie, but I should own the algorithm. In other words, what I've learned from all of those uh, businesses on my platform in terms of who's likely to be creditworthy and who's not. Just like 30 years ago as a banker, if I'd been a banker for 30 years, I would have, have accumulated some wisdom and knowledge. And if I went to another bank, I'm allowed to take that wisdom, knowledge, judgment, if you follow the uh, analogy. We've got to start a business. Well, I, that's, my, that's actually my question. My question Mark, <laughs> Mark you, have, you have like, um, I have like a huge, so much respect for Mark because, you know, we have assets in the UK and I was watching Mark deftly navigate the immediate environment post-Brexit in such a perfect way in a chaotic you know, period of time, obviously, we're probably still navigating in a lot of ways. But like at that moment, it was frenetic and such a steady hand at play with, with because of Mark Carney. But I've seen him in action so many different ways. And But now you have a lot of affiliations, which are very 
powerful industry, not just with the book, but you have Stripe and Brookfield and uh, the UN. Uh, now you have your media platform and your media guru. And you have, obviously you have the government and you have, you have banking. What platform for you, and I view you as one of the most respected leaders and doers of our time now, what platform for you is the platform that's ideal for you to sit atop of to be most impa- impactful of executing this vision? Wow, that's a great, well, it's very, very kind of you to say. I would say at this point in time, the platform that I have that's most impactful is that very long paragraph of the title uh, that Ed said uh, at the start. And Ed, you're absolutely right. Normally, can you remember it, Mark, without prompting? <laughs> it starts with special. That's all I can remember. <laughs> special envoy, something, something. But yeah, governor was uh, easier to remember. But at this point in time, that platform, because of this moment in time, the focus of the private sector, focus of you know, Prime Minister UN and coming towards COP, probably is, uh, is, is the most impactful. Uh, but this is a moment in time. And I, I don't know. I'm glad, I'm glad you said, Arya, I have a media platform com- coming from you is high praise. The, the only one I have is, is courtesy of Ed, actually. I met those Stripe kids 10 years ago when I was a minister. They came in, these two Irish kids, wet behind the ears. I should have just resigned on the spot, ripped off my tie and said, take me back to San Francisco. But you know, the great thing is that I now know that I'm worth more than Arya Burkhoff because I've got many thousands more Twitter followers. And if you value me on my basis of my social media profile, Arya, you know, frankly, I leave you in the dust. But I have zero. We are, we are, I know, because you're not on Twitter. That's why I, I try not to enter the game. <laughs> but we talked a lot about, you know, billion dollar companies. But the point you make very clearly in your bookmark is, and it's a point that others are making as well, which is that COVID has removed the buffers for digital transformation. And on one level, that's extremely exciting. People are accelerating into change. But at the other level, it's also very concerning because, you know, this is, it's called the fourth industrial revolution. It's a bit of a boring cliche, but the point about every industrial revolution is it leaves people behind. And normally it moves at a pace where the people who get left behind get pulled back up as the economy adjusts and the new technologies come on stream. Are you worried that the pace of change is, is so unprecedented compared to previous industrial revolutions that people who are left behind will have no way of pulling themselves back up. How should governments kind of address this? Yeah, and the short answer is yes, I am worried about that. And you, I think you framed it well, which is that it would have been a worry going into COVID and then it's been accelerated. This uh, pace of change has been accelerated, including in ways not to be, this is both positive and negative. So one of the things um, I think we all reflect on is the ability to, uh, for many of our roles, and certainly uh, big elements of the roles the three of us have, our ability to do them remotely. And uh, by the way, I remember the, those uh, the Collinson brothers, the, the two uh, founders of Stripe. But two years ago, three years ago, they set up a new branch which was called Remote, and it was quite a radical idea. I mean, think of it that being radical three years ago, the idea that you would just have people working anywhere in the world. Oh, really? That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, of course, it's entirely natural. I mean, that's what. It, all of us have been sort of doing. So uh, as we uh, touch wood, as we as we emerge, as when we you know, properly fully emerge from COVID, there's a you know, UK-wide question of how, how we can facilitate and level up and spread wide range of activities on the service side across the economy. Now, that's and that's good. That, that would level up from the Southeast. On the other hand, if that is spread out globally, all of a sudden, and there's lots of people who 
you know, could do lots of things that I used to do in the past when I was a, a young investment banker, uh, could do much better uh, in other jurisdictions and much more cheaply than you have this, uh, this downward pressure uh, on wage technology facilitating downward pressure on certain wages and, and pushing up inequality. Now, to accelerate into what you're saying, uh, what you're asking about is, yes, what we do see in every time you've had big series of technological changes is an increase in inequality. Uh, those who have the skills and capital uh, benefit initially, and then eventually it, it's spread more broadly, but eventually normally takes decades and, and decades are a long time. And they're a long time when you start from a, peer, a position of relatively high inequality and uh, having had the shocks that we've had in the last uh, decade or so. So what what can we do? And the, you know, the book goes through some of this, uh, makes the observation that every time we had one of these in the past, we end up revamping and, and upping our game on educational institutions, going from universal primary to quasi-universal tertiary. So institutionalizing mid-career training, being part of it, and you need to integrate that with the uh, social welfare system. This recognition that we need to do what we can, what we talked about a moment ago, or I don't know if it's a recognition yet, but uh, the more we can use technology to empower small business, entrepreneur, you know, broader, I mean, mass, I, I can say this two ways. I can say it as mass entrepreneurialism or sort of a mass artisan type uh, economy. Both of those lead to a greater spreading of the benefits uh, of technology across. Fortunately, I would say that the sustainable, what we need to do to move towards net zero, what we were talking about a moment ago, that tends to be more job heavy and uh, more investment heavy uh, and, more, and local uh, as opposed to global. So that leans in the other direction of uh, some of those digital changes. But certainly just to summarize, you know, big changes on the training side, on the education side related to that, backed up by social welfare. And then I would advocate, and I do try to advocate in the book, that we put a focus on the upside of these changes, where the opportunity set comes for new businesses and how a new business you can be in Sheffield and sell into Shanghai or Saskatoon. You might get more orders from Shanghai than Saskatoon, I guess, but uh, you still can stay in Sheffield. And if we have the ecosystem there, including the financial system that works for that, we have a greater chance of not facing the pressures that we've, we've seen in previous investments. Coming back full circle, where you praise AT&T in the book for investing a billion dollars in reskilling their, their workforce. And it's very counterintuitive because Mostly when you talk about business, you know, sitting around a board table, you're talk talking about what technology are we going to invest in, not are we going to, you know, the idea of a paternalistic company, I thought had gone out the window, but clearly there's an opportunity there. Uh, it was partly, uh, and this was about five years ago, but partly they were looking at, they did, they were going to need to let a lot of people go and then hire a lot of new people in. And uh, the question, and it was a tight labor market question is, well, how many of those people could they retrain and, and retain? I mean, it sounds very obvious, but they did it. There was an element of, um, of responsibility for those who, uh, for those who would come out. I mean, there's another big company, very successful um, uh, financial institution called Allianz uh, based out of Germany. Um, and one of their points is they guarantee employability, not employment, right? So they guarantee that they're continuing to build skills that people would have trans, you know, transferable as, uh, as they shift their, uh, the number of people that they have. I, I'll say one thing, one other thing, which I try to bring out, which is on this question, you know, we are still in most advanced economies, it is much more, we're tax advantaged to invest in ICT and information technology in capital relative to investing in people. Uh, you know, I can't capitalize that. I, I, I don't get the benefit. And that's that's something we really do, uh, I think, need to tackle. I mean, uh, I'm going to hop about now. So I want to ask you 
while you're on, because obviously you started the uh, conversation at the Bank of England about digital currencies. And obviously, despite obviously being extremely wealthy myself, I've just seen my enormous Bitcoin holding go down by 30% because the Chinese government has clearly decided that Bitcoin has to be pushed out of the way as it launches its own digital currency. But uh, is there a chance now for Boris Johnson to um, dominate global financial markets by launching the Carney, the, the Bank of England's digital currency? Do you think Biden's going to do that? I mean, I barely understand what a digital currency is, to be honest, but are we going to get them sponsored by governments? The, the first thing is a Bitcoin. I think the uh, chancellor has already uh, nailed it uh, in terms <laughs> of the name uh, with a tweet. Uh, so he's on your medium uh, on Twitter. Aria may not have seen that because he's not on Twitter. <laughs> now, um, the, I think the short, answer, the short answer is yes. I think that there will be um, central bank digital currencies, uh, Bank of England, uh, the Fed, ECB, other major central banks. It may take a few years, but they're uh, certainly working hard on that. And I think it's going to uh, happen for several reasons. One is the cash is it's not totally going to disappear, but it's disappearing. Secondly, that there is uh, some positive, also some negative innovation going on with private digital currencies and stable coins and other things. And what we can't have, the history of money, and the book goes through some of the history of money, couldn't help myself, uh, went, went through it. But is that any good innovation from the private sector in terms of money is ultimately appropriated by the state yes. through the central bank. Because the core of the system has to be credible and trusted and rock solid. Uh, you know, the bottom line, and it's not just Bitcoin, but these stable coins and other things, they are not there for, uh, for eternity. There are issues with them. There's sometimes huge issues, sometimes smaller issues, but smaller issues that become big issues under stress. And so you can't have them at the core. They may play some roles, just to be clear. And again, this may be too techie, but um, there are roles for native, what are called native currencies in smart contract networks and some wholesale finance opportunities. And so you see a lot of activity around that uh, based off of Ethereum or Ripple, uh, other currencies like that. And, and, and they may well have a role but at the core of the system, you, I, my judgment, you build out from a central bank digital currency. And that it creates a lot of opportunities. It creates an opportunity for more competition, by the way, in the system as a whole. I would expect, no guarantees and others will make the decision, that the UK will be, if not at the forefront, uh, very close to the forefront in terms of developing this uh, to the benefit. of, and, and this will help unlock some of the things we were talking about. A, a, a bit before uh, in terms of uh, making a better environment for small business uh, as well. But it's a big geopolitical issue. China sees it as an opportunity to kind of take on the dollar. Well, I think that, so China, to some extent, very quickly, it backed into this because their private companies, uh, Alibaba, developed their own currencies uh, or effectively did. And then what we've seen is uh, that being pulled back into the state, kind of proving my point from before. First point. Second point is that there are broader forces that lead to the renminbi potentially becoming the reserve currency over time, size of the Chinese economy. But very importantly, what happens and what happened when the UK stopped being the reserve currency, uh, it took a lot longer than people thought it would be when it gave up and it became the US dollar. But what happens first is that people start pricing transactions in that currency. And so what's incredibly important is in a world that's moving towards digital, is well, what currency is being used to price transactions in terms of digital? Now, it's not the renminbi today. It could be, as you get the spread of the Chinese um, tech companies and social media companies, uh, could be. Although if the US, the UK, 
the ECB move in parallel, it's just as likely to be a mix of those that we'll all be familiar with, albeit at a lower cost. And I'll make one point that isn't as obvious, and I should stop here, which is that th this will mean you know, quite big enough savings for merchants that get passed on to consumers that it's that it's noticeable if we if we do it right. So Ari is speechless. I mean, this is very exciting stuff. I want to now lower the tone because Mark, you've slightly, your range is so wide that you could be a politician. And you, by the way, have full editorial control over this podcast. This is not a gotcha podcast. But if you were a politician and we were doing this, I would obviously ask you the three things you've done to lower your carbon footprint. I've restricted all my flying. Oh, yes. Very good. <laughs> I've done, I've, done, I've followed your lead. Uh, no. Uh, well, we, um, uh, our car is 100% uh, uh, electric. Um, so that's the first thing. That is the first prep for any politician. They arrive at the environmental interview with, in a diesel car. So you've avoided that. Okay, so avoided that. Although I, I will say that when we got to the UK, just as a parenthesis, uh, seven, eight years ago, the recommendation for lower environmental footprint was before the diesel gate. And so we ended up with a diesel, a diesel car that um, you know, was sounded like a good idea at the time, but was not, as it turned out. Uh, anyway, so electric car, electric electricity to our home. Uh, sorry, not electric electricity. Sorry, green, green. electricity to our home. And then the you know diet has shifted quite substantially away from uh, from forms of meat. It's not exclusively vegetarian slash vegan. I will admit that that is driven more by other members of the household, but that has lowered my carbon footprint alongside. I was so scared and nervous doing this podcast that I forgot to kind of tee up the kind of soft questions at, at the beginning. So now, obviously, and all the people who are listening to this podcast while they're jogging and trying to work out the financial technical standards that you've been talking about <laughs> would obviously want me to ask as well, your favorite moment of being governor of the Bank of England? What was the bit you liked best? I have to say, I shouldn't say this because it shows me in a bad light. But when I moved to the House of Lords, I made a resolution because it, when I arrived in the House of Commons, I kind of was already a bit of a media tart and all of this, and I didn't do the kind of groundwork. So I, I turned over a new leaf when I got to the House of Lords, and I worked incredibly hard, and I make sure I say hello to everyone when I walk through the door. But it helps that every time I say hello to someone, they say, um, good morning, my lord. And I think that's just great. I'm trying to get a laugh out of Aria here. <laughs> what, what was your favorite bit, apart from the pink tailcoats, what was your favorite bit at the Bank of England? My favorite bit at the Bank of England? It's a great question. I mean, I liked it all. Uh, it was, you know, there were hard days, but no bad days. Let's put it that way. I'm just trying to think of a specific example because what I really liked was, and this is not a politician answer, okay? You mean it's honest? It's an honest answer. Well, it's. <laughs> I haven't thought it through. I haven't. I haven't focus group tested it. But the when we go around and do regional visits, um, I always like the regional visits. I particularly like going up to um, sort of Humberside, Teesside, just because of the mix of. You know, it's doing better, but it's um, you know had a tough run over the over the decades in relative terms. It's part of the next economy because of the you know uh, the wind and other aspects. People are fun, and I like the questions I used to get at the uh, schools and uh, be asked about. I'll just tell you very quickly. So, uh, yeah, I'd be asked about what kind of car I drove, just like you. They asked the same question. <laughs> Do I have own any Bitcoin? Uh, that was another question. That is a, that is a good question, actually. Yeah. There was a brewery, and I can't quite remember the name of the brewery. Uh, this is terrible, uh, just outside of Newcastle. But I can remember the product, which was um, uh, it was a six pack of ales called the Northern Powerhouse, uh, and they started at you know four percent alcohol per volume and went up by two percentage points each each one. <laughs> I love it. That's uh, that's George Osborne's. Uh, that's that's his legacy. 
the Northern powerhouse. These days, they would ask you if you, if you own any Dogecoins. Yeah, I'm happy to say I don't. Mario, <laughs> last word to you. No, I, look, I think that, uh, like you said, you have uh, you asked uh, Mark about what his what his uh, own personal efforts are to reduce uh, carbon. But I think that while those are fun for the podcast, you know, matching his skill sets, which are based in you know finance and global impact, with what he said about values in the book, I would he could eat all the meat he wants and he could drive yeah, all the cars point. he wants if he could match his skill sets to the global financial markets and fixing climate for the for all of us to follow with seventy plus trillion dollars by twenty fifty, which I hope we'll all be around for, by the way. That is the best use of uh, matching that optimization of his mind to global impact and his personal uh, uh, patterns uh, aside. Like that's what I'm most focused on. The fact that he does both is enviable and noble. But I really am uh, really impressed with um, the global plight that he's taking on your term. And I hope after that, we'll if you don't have a platform beyond that, we're going to create one for you. And I have an idea already for that. So I uh, really appreciate it. <laughs> Brilliant. Ari is always doing deals. Fantastic. That's fantastic. I'm going to have a steak tonight after that. <laughs> you deserve it. Have two. <laughs> Mark, you've been brilliant. Thank you, Ari. My guest and co-host and Mark Carney for coming on this podcast. Very great. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.